The following podcast is sponsored by SuperheroStuff.com. Welcome, everyone, to this episode of H2O. My name is Jason Hunt. I'm the editor here at SciFiForMe.com. Sitting across from me, my co-editor at HorrorForMe.com. Hello there. Mr. Timothy Harvey. And let's... We touched briefly last week on this topic and uh, people have had a chance to kind of get an idea get a sense of what's going on and I'm sure everybody's got an opinion on it if you want to share yours you can send us an email h2o at sci-fi for me.com or call our hotline which is area code 573-42-SCI-FI and leave a message there the fan film Axanar mm-hmm Recently was hit with a lawsuit from CBS and Paramount. Yes. For infringement of copyright. Not only uh, was Axanar Productions named in the lawsuit, but also uh, Alec Peters, who is one of the producers of Axanar. And, uh, and then it also goes on to list 20 other people... Uh, and I think somewhere in the complaint by name, I, I, it, I'd have to pull it up again to, to look at it, but it mentions all of the people that were responsible for coming up with Axanar. Right. So production staff, writers, producers, anybody that was, that was part of the development of the Axanar production. And everybody on the internet suddenly becomes a legal expert as as, as they do right because the internet is full of knowledge exactly yes all the knowledge yes. and everything you read on the internet is true that's right even if even when it contradicts itself it's still true because the internet is made of candy and unicorns yes okay so not so much so uh so so well the big the big thing the big question is what does this mean for fan films uh, and I think it's a I think it's a three part question. One, why would CBS and Paramount take this action against Axanar and not the others? Two, what does this mean for other fan films in the Star Trek universe? And three, the broader question: What does it do? You know, what kind of impact is it going to have on fan fan films in general? Right. Because if CBS and Paramount feel compelled to protect their property in such a way this one time, who's to say they're not going to do it again with Star Trek Continues or uh, Star Trek New Voyages, Phase 2, or Star Trek Renegades, or, you know, you take your pick, any of those guys, Uh, you know, because we we went down and, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a fan production studio down in Oklahoma City. We talked to those guys. They're they're doing educational programming that's set right. in the Star Trek universe. So, I I guess we need to take this in pieces. Everybody was saying, well, you, CBS is greedy. Well, CBS owns it. Right. Well, uh, it, there's okay. There's a there's a there's a there's a dangerously weird dancing balancing act thing that happens with fan films. And we've seen it not just with the Star Trek universe, obviously, but we've seen it with the Marvel universe and the DC universe. And um, it's uh, pretty much, I can see, oh, oh, uh, uh, Mortal Kombat. Right. Um, we've seen it with Power Rangers. Power Rangers. Uh, and 
the there's always been this kind of weird pull and push to and fro kind of as long as you're not profit okay, the the argument has gone mm. as long as you're not profiting from it right as long as it's just a i love this cool thing let me show you how me make a cool thing about this cool thing that i love right yeah everyone's kind of like okay sure you know but at the same time and then you have something come along um that out of the blue seems to upset the lawyers mm. um and you're trying what, what what triggered this why is why is this the one that you know yeah cuz there was a deadpool short fan right. film that uh chris notariel mm -hmm. did that got hit for some reason mm -hmm. and nobody nobody ever really explained why that never re really came out they had they they ended up with an understanding and it got back out online but it was it was pulled for a while there was a there was a copyright ding on it on youtube right. and it was it was missing for a while and chris of course was all over the internet talking about how marvel was persecuting him and and that seems to be the big opinion of the day with regard to the Axonar suit. You know, oh, you just, you know, they just got too big for you. They got too much money. In. Well, I mean, compared to other productions, though, Axonar got really big. Well, I mean, a million dollars in crowdfunding. Yeah. This is this is something that none of the other fan productions have done. I mean, you look at the, the, the fidelity of the sets. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean the one the one that I went to in Oklahoma City, you know, that's really 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 close. Mm -hmm. And I know James Colley at New Voyages is a stickler for the details, oh, sure. and he's always posting pictures of the, just the the little things, the labels, the labels on the cards, <laughs> and the, you know everything. And he's he's very 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 detail oriented, and the guys over at Star Trek continues the same way. They want this stuff to look like the original show. And Axanar, of course, is set prior to that. Right. So you're looking at costumes that are going to be, you know, the cage where no man has gone before, and so there's even less reference material to match. And so, you know, the attention to detail has got to be even more painstaking because you don't have as much to look at. Well, Alec Peters has said that they've had conversations with CBS. And back in Vegas, I think in April or something like that, they're talking to April or May. He said, yeah, I've had conversations with, with the suits, with representatives from CBS and Paramount. And they said, well, you know, they couldn't give him any direction, he says. Right. They couldn't give him any direction on this project because then it would no longer be, you know, it's it's the plausible deniability thing where if CBS gives him any direction, then suddenly they're involved in it. And they can't look like they're sanctioning. Uh, right. Yeah, you know, okay, it's a dodge. But uh, Peters did post on uh, January 4th. He says, well, today was the first full day back and much was dealing with lawyers. One of the things all the armchair lawyers on Facebook don't seem to get is that a legal case is much more than what is in the complaint. That's a very telling sentence right there. You could parse that for oh, half sure. an hour. Yeah. 
People were all claiming they knew why CBS was suing Axonar. We were too big. We were making too much money. We were paying crazy salaries to employees. We were too good and Paramount is scared. I could go on, but the point is no one knows and no one bothered to read the complaint, which says none of that. We won't be commenting much on the legal case as we are in discussions to settle the situation. What I can say is that all those armchair lawyers have absolutely no clue what is going on in these discussions and no clue what CBS and Paramount thinks. We hope to amicably resolve the situation in a way that benefits CBS, Paramount, Axonar, and all fan films. Now, something that he says here. The point is, no one knows and no one bothered to read the complaint, which says none of that. I read the complaint. I read mm -hmm. most of the complaint. Sure. Michael Hinman over at 1701 News read the complaint, and he has a very good analysis, point-by-point -point analysis of this in, in the broader context. And his thinking, Michael Hinman, his thinking is that it's not so much the fact that Axonar got this much money that they got so big, mm -hmm. or the fact right. that they were using Gary Graham and Tony Scott and people – you know, J.G. Hertzler and people who had been part of the Star Trek official real productions because Renegades did that, you know, Continues has got it. You know, sure. all, all of the fan films have got Star Trek alumni on both sides of the camera. Hinman thinks that one of the things that forced CBS to take notice of this was Axonar Productions crowdfunding this fan film. Mm-hmm. And taking some of that money, however much it was, to set up Ares Studios. Right. Which was a for-profit operation mm -hmm. to yep. make other productions. Sure. Yep. And the line of thinking basically is you're going to capitalize on somebody else's property, in this case Star Trek, in order to bring money in and then take that money and go do non-Star Trek for-profit stuff. So essentially, right. you're making a profit off of Star Trek. Exactly. Right. And that seems to be a pretty solid analysis to me. That, I think, is the... Yeah, yeah because the internet, of course, is full of armchair lawyers. And I am not a lawyer. I do not have a law degree in any way, shape, or form. I have an art degree. This is a different thing. What? <laughs> it's true. Um, but... Generally speaking, what seems to be the consensus out of the people who are actually looking at this in that kind of way is, yeah, they have, they spent money on something that was going to be a for-profit uh, uh, thing that they were going to profit on going down the line. So, you know, if they had basically set up a, a, a non-profit studio where they're going to continue to make Star Trek films that were, you know, essentially fan films that were not going right. to conflict with... Which is what New Voyages has done. Right. Um, I think they probably would have had a lot less friction here because we have this long history of Star Trek uh, uh, fan-based productions. Now, this is not to say that Paramount has not shut down fan productions before because they have. Uh, they were not big fans of fan productions in the 80s. Right. Um, DC has not been a fan of the... They, were, they did the same thing in the 90s. Um, but... Probably around, well, I think really in, in the 90s and into the 2000s, most of them looked at it as a kind of, you know, market, free marketing. 
they weren't having to pay for someone to basically go, oh, look, someone did a Batman fan film. It's really, really good. Guess what they just advertised? Batman. Batman. Yeah. You know, oh, someone just did a really cool Star Trek thing. You know, Star. we have no Star Trek television shows on the air right now. Yeah. Ta-da. Well, in Star yeah. Wars. Star yeah, Wars is true. a good example of this because for the longest time there was, you know, we had wilderness years mm-hmm. when we weren't getting any Star Wars movies ever again after uh, Revenge of the Sith. That was it. It was mm-hmm. done. Right. Finished. Nobody, nobody ever conceived of the possibility that somebody else would be making Star Wars movies besides George Lucas. Right. And, uh, oh, did you see that now there's a petition that's going around? I, I think it's on change.org to, to get George Lucas to direct one of the new ones. Nine, I think. <laughs> well, you know what? I actually, I actually don't have a problem with that. I don't either. I think it'd be... Uh, well, if, mm, 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 I would, as long as Kathleen Kennedy is there to sit there and say, no, George, can't as, do that. Well, and as long as George wants to. Because here, oh, you know, sure, I think that... Sure. I and think I don't that, think he does. Yeah, I don't think he does either. But but to my point, as the Star Wars thing, all, all these fan films and everything, there was a time when that was a no-no. Mm-hmm, right. And Lucasfilm turned around and said, you know what? Instead of kicking all of you guys to the curb, we're going to embrace this thing. And they did the whole fan film mm-hmm. contest, right. yeah. which they're bringing back. Mm-hmm. And that says something right there. That's Kathleen Kennedy. Yeah. It has to be her sitting there going, you know, we had this thing once. Yeah. Because, I mean, you can argue very strongly that it is a free marketing thing, that it is a prom- it is promotion you don't have to pay for. And, right. And advertising is one of the most expensive pieces of production. Oh, it costs easily as much if you do it right. It's as much as principal photography. Yeah. So, so if you get any time, you cannot pay for that. Yeah. Um, and you are uh, an accountant for a movie studio, which never makes money anyway. Which, yeah. Which well, and actually, the thing is, is that they really don't. I mean, if you look at, I mean, yes, you can generate all this kind of money, but when you look at how much money they end up putting back into productions, movie studios don't. They're basically constantly doing a running to catch up kind of thing. Right. Um, and, and part of that is the model of what we're watching um, because we've, everything has to be a blockbuster now and part of a series. And, and this is not a very stable model, actually, for long term because um, your big budget. Well, and George Lucas even commented on that you know, when, in, in that Charlie Rose interview, oh, sure. uh, which we talked about over on Echo Chamber, where, where he's basically said, you know, when Ro- Charlie Rose says, Steven Spielberg says Star Wars changed everything, changed the industry. It was all, I mean, after that, it was everything right. was there. And Lucas was like, yeah, it changed it for the good and for the bad because on the bad side of it, Everybody wanted to do the same thing. Right. And he talks about this fear of creativity now in Hollywood where, you know, like you say, the, the reboots and the sequels and the remakes mm-hmm. and all of this other stuff. Because nobody wants to do anything original because they want to do something that's already known. Well, known because, because at the end of the day, uh, a studio is a money-making. The, the idea is to make money. I mean, it, it is a business. It is not um, to, to, to both the good and the bad the Hollywood dream factory is less about the dreaming and more about the factory. Um, yeah. And, and that's, I mean, yeah, it, it, that's kind of the way it is, but, and, and the way it kind of should be because it is, this is how you get films made is, is, is it's money. Okay. And it is a process, but at the same time, you are, if, if your Lord of the Rings film series made all the money, 
and it was a trilogy, mm-hmm. then somehow The Hobbit becomes a trilogy um, because that's how the finances work. And so, I mean, it's, you know, a film that should have been one movie long turns into three and, you know, Harry Potter books get split into two and Hunger Games books get split into two and things like that. Every every third book sure. in the trilogy right. gets split. To some degree, and, and to some degree, there's 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 uh, an argument to be made for that as well. But um, you look at what Star Wars did, and it still didn't catch on to a certain degree. I mean, you didn't you didn't have your giant multiple film series um, right away after Star Wars. I mean, it wasn't you didn't get that kind of scale. I mean, you had you had things that were were sequels. Um, you had your Godfather sequels. You had your Jaws sequels. Uh, your horror film sequels, but it wasn't the kind of scale that we see now. The scale now is, you know, these are all giant, you know, huge pictures. Well, and on the super uh, on the superhero side, you had Superman, Superman right. two, Superman three, Superman four, and you had a law of diminishing returns on those. Right, and you, because and, you know franchises back then, the the more you did, the cheaper they got, and right. the, and the and the worse they looked. Look at the Batman franchise. At sure, that time. but you also looked at a lot of this stuff was original material. I mean, it was you, it, you know the first film might be an uh, an adaptation of a novel like Jaws or Godfather, but then it became you know uh, they were writing screenplay sequels, uh, and of course the Star Wars films weren't weren't adaptations of anything. The Star Trek films weren't either. Um, so now we're seeing a lot more because it's known material. And again, from a financial standpoint, it makes sense. If you've got a, if you've got a hit, hit book series, um, you know, Hunger Games, there you go. Uh, you know, Divergent, um, um, Star Wars. I mean, you know, this stuff, you know, it's existing property that you know you have a fan base. The Marvel Universe, it's an existing property. You know you have a fan base. Um, and oh, look at that. We've made the fan base huge now. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, how many comic book readers are there in the country? Right. You know, versus versus how many fans of the Marvel Universe. So, you end up with this stuff where there is so much money tied up in this. There's so much marketing opportunity tied up in this that if a studio looks at a fan film and goes, free marketing, yeah, they're going to go, okay. Well, Most a- of the time. Assuming, assuming that the, the property is handled the right oh way. sure, sure, and I mean, and we should probably talk a little about fair use because there seems to be a lot of confusion out there about yeah, fair. I use. I was about to say fair use doesn't come into this, but now now I know what you're saying. Yeah, yeah a lot of people are sitting there saying that fair use plays into this, right? And it really doesn't. doesn't. I mean, I um, so in 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 the grand scheme of legal things, and this again, this is this is broad strokes, folks. I'm again yeah. not a lawyer, um, not not the person to come to with your copyright questions uh, or anything like that. But in the broad sense... You know, we ought to get Don Simon in here to talk about this at some point. We really should. Yeah. Um, um, there this, is... Go ahead. There is a... Fair use applies to commentary and parody, generally speaking. Well, and, and in that, uh, in the context of that, mm-hmm. there has to be something transformative right so basically if you're doing something like say the um the star wars despecialized edition right that might fall under fair use because it's an academic pursuit in in terms of film history and commentary to look at 
the original, original, original version of Star Wars compared to whatever the current version sure. is and doing something like that. Whereas parody is, I, I guess, you know, anything that Nerdist has done mm -hmm. with the Justice League movies. Um, oh, Robot Chicken. Robot Chicken, the, um, anything like uh, that. How it should have ended. Uh, yeah, you know, superhero cafe, superhero that cafe. Stuff. That sort so of thing. Yeah. All of that stuff is parody, but but there's a transformative element in that you have something. The the whatever it is that you're doing to it mm -hmm. changes it to the point where it's obvious that it's not the original stuff. Right. And Axanar is not that. No, it's not. And and the thing is that most fan films aren't. Right. Because most... they try to be faithful to the original material. Exactly. And so what they are essentially doing is they are using copyrighted characters. Mm -hmm. They are using material they do not own to create new material that they still don't own. Right. Uh, legally. And that's and that's in this uh, I've got the I've got the uh, the actual complaint up. Mm -hmm. And it says, this is an action for copyright infringement arising out of defendant's unauthorized exploitation of Star Trek, one of the most successful entertainment franchises of all time. Since its inception, Star Trek has become a cultural phenomenon that is eagerly followed by millions of fans throughout the world. Plaintiffs own the copyrights in this treasured franchise, which includes six television series, 12 motion pictures spanning nearly 50 years, and they continue to produce new original content for the Legion of Star Trek fans. So this first point basically establishes we own it, we're still making it. Right. Point number two, defendants have made a short film entitled Star Trek Prelude to Axanar and are in the process of producing a film called Axanar. Uh, collectively, they're called the Axanar Works for mm -hmm. the document here. Sure. The Axanar Works infringe plaintiff's works by using innumerable copyrighted elements of Star Trek, including its settings, characters, species, and themes. The Axanar Works are intended to be professional quality productions that, by defendant's own admission, unabashedly take Paramount's and CBS's intellectual property and aim to look and feel like a true Star Trek movie. On information and belief, defendants have raised over $1 million so far to produce these works, including building out a studio and hiring actors, set designers, and costume designers. The Axnar works are substantially similar to and unauthorized derivative works of mm -hmm. plaintiffs' Star Trek television series and movies, in contravention of the copyright laws of the United States. Now, that's the legalese. Yep. They're basically saying you're trying to be too much like the real thing. Right. And everybody is like, well, they just got too big. You know, Paramount got jealous because everybody's going to like Axanar more than they like the next real Star Trek movie because... Axanar looks tons better than Star Trek, Be you know, Star no, Trek uh, Beyond. People are still going to go see Star Trek Beyond. Oh yeah, whether it's whether it's crap or not, people are still going to go see it. Right, and hopefully it won't be. I said hopefully. <laughs> I will. I you know what I I want to I want to like it. 
I want I want it to I want a, I want a good Star Trek movie. I want I want one I am I'm I'm happy with and don't have the quibbles I had with the first two. I hear that the new one is going to pretty much ignore Into Darkness. Well, that's good because Into Darkness has Into Darkness has two big universe changing things that completely cause problems. So we it's best to ignore those when you can. Yeah. And wave him. So they go through all of this with the uh, with the identification of all the defendants and everything. And then they go through and identify all of the works um, about Star Trek. And in one of the items, in one of the episodes of the original series, James T. Kirk, captain of the USS Enterprise, meets his hero, Garth of Izar, our former starship captain. Kirk and Garth discuss Garth's victory in a, back, in a battle at Exonar. And then they go on through all of the different other productions and whatnot. And they say plaintiffs continue to produce and develop Star Trek motion pictures and television series and have announced plans to release a new Star Trek motion picture in 2016, Star Trek Beyond, mm -hmm. and a new Star Trek television series in January 2017. Now, interesting timing on this because the lawsuit didn't hit until Christmas and it didn't come until after they announced the new, st the new series on CBS. Which makes me wonder, armchair lawyer that I am here, it makes me wonder if CBS might be a little more sensitive to online productions going into the production of their own online production. Well, okay. Because the new Star Trek series is going to be on the CBS, the, the CBS yeah, version yeah. of Netflix. Right. You have to pay to watch it online. It's not going to be yeah. yeah. It's not going to be on the network. Mm -hmm. It's not going to be on cable. It's not going to be on. It's, it's going to be online. It's their own web series, sure. as it were, which is what Axonar is, which is what Phase Two and and continues and all these others are. So I'm wondering if CBS might have sat there and went, oh, you know, ours isn't going to look any different from all these other web series because it's a web series. Granted, it's a web series is going to have a bigger budget. Well, okay, but yeah, okay, yes, to a certain degree, because what's what's what they're looking at here is that the production quality level of Axonar, and and let let's be perfectly fair here. A lot of the fan series productions look amazing. There's mm -hmm. some really, yeah, yeah, and they've gotten better and better and better as time has gone by. I mean, you you go back to the original ones, and they looked good. A lot of the original ones, I mean, with this stuff was right. They did a really good job, yeah. But they've gotten better and better. The effects have gotten better. Um, but Axonar at this point was essentially going to be competing with the actual CBS Paramount produced series for the eyes of the audience, and that's where I think it really hit. Well, actually, looking in, looking in deeper into this. It's the fact that they're taking the Battle of Axanar as their subject matter. Because since the Battle of Axanar was mentioned in an episode of Star Trek, mm -hmm. and since Garth of Izar was mentioned in an episode of Star Trek, mm -hmm. and that whole element is there, it says here that Prelude to Axanar is directly and unabashedly intended to be a derivative work of Star Trek mm -hmm. because of that point. Um, and they say, uh, uh, defendants incorporated numerous elements of the Star Trek copyrighted works into Prelude to Axanar, including, but not limited to, the concept of the Battle of Axanar itself, mm -hmm. the Klingons, Starfleet, and characters such as Garth of Izar. 
So basically, you've got this this idea here that they're they're creating something that directly follows out of an episode of the original series. Sure. Whereas all of these other fan films are telling completely original stories. Granted, they're with this set of characters that we all know. Mm-hmm. But they're doing it in a in a way that we know that we're Mickey Rudy and Judy Garland in the in the barn. Axonar is sitting there Kids saying at home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really. Look him up. <laughs> You're uh, gonna have to. See, this is what you get with our show. History lessons. That's right. Embedded in, in commentary. That's so right. you know, you have to go look it up and mm-hmm. do some homework and do some research and you learn things. That's right. Go look You're welcome. Yeah. All right. <laughs> That's so, why we're here. So all of these other fan films, they're making a Judy in the barn. This this Axonar film is sitting there going, Well, we're Gene and Gene. You know, we're Gene Roddenberry and Gene Coon. Well, you know, I think I think I think it's that, but I I, I I think that it's that and a combination of, you know, this is something that's going to be a professional looking series that could can potentially be viewed by because because we know that people don't necessarily pay attention to these things. It could potentially be viewed as somebody's gonna see this and go, Oh, this is the new Star Trek project. Mm-hmm. Okay, or this is a new Star Trek project. This is They're not necessarily going to look at it, and they're going to look at some of the cast, and they're going to see professional actors who they recognize. Who have been in Star Trek before. Uh, or who have been in other science fiction series like Battlestar Galactica and things I mean, like that. So. Well, and you've got Gary Graham playing the same character they played in their, uh, Enterprise. Yeah. So I think it becomes this this very unusual situation, because you don't... You don't have something like with Doctor Who, okay? So Doctor Who, uh, the create a lot of the writers and creators on Doctor Who over the years own the rights to their characters. Okay, this actually caused problems with the, when this when the series came back because Terry Nation, the guy who the guy who wrote the first Dalek story, mm-hmm. owned the Daleks. Right. Okay. His family, after Terry Nation died, continued to own the rights to the Daleks. This caused problems in the book line. When they couldn't work out, the BBC could not uh, work out a deal with the estate to use the Daleks in one of the no- in in the novel series, and basically ended up derailing a storyline they had spent like four years building. Oh right, right, I remember that. And so then, when the new ser- when the series came back, there was this real question: is whether they would they be able to work out the deal with with Terry Nation? This is not the only thing. Um, uh, the Santarans. Um, several other characters, which means you've actually had Doctor Who films that were made that were not made by the BBC, but they were they are made by the people who own the characters. So there's been a there's been a Santaran film. There's been a uh, there's a unit movie, mm-hmm. um, and there's these are things that were basically made by the the creators of the things, licensing them out and having the productions made. They're generally not very good, unfortunately. They had less of a budget than the BBC series had in the 80s, mm-hmm. um, which meant that the walls really shook. Um, <laughs> but, but the fact of the matter is that they could do that. They could, and legally, they could go off and do that. Um, very few properties uh, here in the States 
very few uh, companies publishing uh, television, comic book, anything like that, allow their authors to do that. Um, and in fact, creator creator owned comic books became a big deal mm-hmm. yeah. because you would find okay, we've got uh, uh, Jack Kirby or uh, um, uh, Bob Finger, Bill Finger, Bill Finger, uh, Bob came, yeah, Bob, yeah, trying uh, Bill Finger, and and you look at some of these folks who were the creative forces behind things and didn't see the money, mm-hmm. um, or you know, basically died in relative obscurity. Uh, outside of the folks who really knew what they did, the, the larger fan base had no idea what these folks were really responsible for. Right. Um, and the fact that, you know, you have somebody come in like Neil Gaiman, who, you know, owns the char- these characters, and you've got, uh, uh, you know, image comics because people wanted to own their own characters and all this sure. stuff. Well, there was that whole thing between Gaiman and, um, oh... What was his name? Uh, you know, the whole Miracle Man, right, Marvel sure. Man. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, uh, Todd McFarlane. Right. And Marvel. And it, you know, all. I mean, there was a the, a whole ownership mess. Oh, sure. Them. Well, uh, uh, um, uh, Buckaroo Banzai. Oh, God, yeah. Buckaroo Banzai is we, one of those Why things. we will never see the sequel to Buckaroo Banzai. Yeah, because nobody owns who owns what. Yeah. Nobody, no, nobody knows who owns what. What I only had one the couple words. Guys, the words yes. I got to use them. Yeah. Well, because the guy who produced the first one apparently sold sold derivative rights to various different people. Mm-hmm. Didn't keep records. Went crazy. Killed himself. Right. And nobody knows who did what. Nobody. Nobody. But see, the problem I have with that is that the people who bought the rights ought to have records of what they bought. Oh, well, they sure they were. There should be a paper trail somewhere, well, somebody. You know, but there, And there is, but the question to them, and again, because it is a business, the question for them is, is this going to be profitable for me? And is it going to be worth my time to try and put it all together? Because if you're owning these different pieces, mm-hmm. you still have to put them together. Right. And the question, beca- you know, so the question is, is, is it worth it financially? And it's not a question of creativity. It's a question of, Dollars and cents, and yeah. and I I would love it to be creativity, but we just had a, a really great uh, uh, seminar speech last night with a uh, a guy I know here in town who's a a filmmaker who just just did a feature, and one of the things he kept coming back to is is the next one it's going to be all about distribution because <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's just that's just the reality of yeah. it is is if you aren't if you're if you're a filmmaker. On an independent level or on a, a low budget feature level, you that's the you have to be thinking. You can't necessarily just be. You, well, no, you can't just be thinking about. Am I making a good movie? Right. The question am I is, is something that people will watch. Yeah, and how how am I going to sell it? Because that's how you get it out in the world. So yeah. well, and when I made my movie, mm-hmm. you know, distribution wasn't wasn't a top top sure. of my mind because uh, I'm shooting a movie. Then I have to edit a movie. You know, mm-hmm. and then and then what? Um, I mean, and I've got distribution on it, you know, online and and maybe a little DVD and, and some stuff. But, you know, eventually, if I've ever finished the French subtitles, um, you know, you could we can get it out there on Amazon. Sure. But, but yeah, you when you're making something like that, that's not something you normally think about mm-hmm. until you've been through the process at oh, least yeah. once. And then after that, you're going... Oh, man. <laughs> that's right. And then you never want to do it again. Well, and it's, you know, when, and when our, our, our friend Kendall Sin, who appears 
semi-regularly over on Rogue's Gallery. Yes. And will be appearing semi-regularly over on HorrorForMe.com. <laughs> can we say that? Can we? Can we? Can we talk about? Yeah, well, we, no, can, we, we can. We can. We can. We can say that. He, we can say that he appearing. And actually, his web series will uh, Shadowfalls, one of the first web series, will actually be appearing on horrorforme.com dot com as well. Yep. But um, he's made features, and he's got distribution. And uh, folks at home, little inside baseball. If you ever want to make a feature film, and you want to get dis- distributed, you can. You will never make money. You will not. You will you shoot it in. Uh, shoot it in Romania, and you might get a chance. Well, and and uh, but, well, it's all know. about foreign money now. Oh, a lot of it is. So you, if you get the Chinese market, the fourth claim for re- well, Star Wars hasn't even opened in China yet. You, you see, you you look but at the global the, box office, but it's also that. it also doesn't have the same cultural impact in China that it has here. So it'd be very interesting. Be very interesting to see what the numbers of the China did, bar. How did the original trilogy do in China when eh. it finally screened? Eh. Yeah. It was okay. I mean, it, it, but, it, but it was nothing like nothing like here. Fourth claim for relief. This is from the this is from the Axonar. That was our suits. digression. Yes, <laughs> an actual. This is point sixty eight in this whole yeah. thing. An actual controversy has arisen and now exists relating to the rights and duties of plaintiffs and defendants under the United States copyright laws. In that, plaintiffs contend that they are the sole owners of the Star Trek copyrighted works. And that the Axonar works infringe plaintiff's rights in the Star Trek copyrighted works. Defendants apparently contend that they are entitled to create, distribute, market, advertise, promote, sell, or offer for sale derivative works of the Star Trek copyrighted works, which contain elements that are substantially similar to the Star Trek copyrighted works. There it is, right there. Mm Mm-hmm. Where the people who own the intellectual property... Right. Are sitting there saying, hey, these people think they have a right to it. They have a right to make fan films. They have a right to to write fan fiction. They have a right to create their own stuff based on our works. And they don't. They don't have the right, the legal right, right. to do Correct. this. And you've got so many people out there who think they do. Oh, yeah. Oh, CBS is just being greedy. No. CBS is following the letter of the law. Sure. CBS owns it. They are protecting their property rights. They are protecting their intellectual property rights. Yeah. And... um, I think I think part of it actually really does come out of the fact that for certain pieces of subject matter, for certain things, for certain ideas, for certain characters, they have such a cultural impact. They have they resonate, mm-hmm. and there are, you, uh, I don't know there are there aren't that many there aren't that many that out there that do this. Star Wars, Star Trek, Doctor Who. Um, Harry Potter, maybe Superman. Uh, Superman, um, maybe Twilight. Lord of the Rings. Well, on, <laughs> honestly, to, to a degree, Twilight. Yeah, um, just because you know My it's, Little Pony. Just because it's terrible doesn't mean it doesn't have an impact. <laughs> but but it do, but it does. I mean, yeah. if you look at the sales numbers on Twilight, the Twilight series, it clearly was popular. Okay, people bought it. Mm. People enjoyed it. Um, I feel I feel for those people, and we can get you help. 
It's well, going to be okay. Now, but now, still, to be fair, to just to, to give me another uh, another place where I could plug another one of our shows over on on Sci-Fi XY, mm-hmm. Sonia and I talked about it on on one episode. We talked about the fact that the Twilight books are a little bit different in terms of quality and execution from the Twilight movies. Well, yes, so, yeah, there are there are some fans who who feel that the books are much better. Than the movies, because the movies got Hollywoodized. Well, and that may be the case, and and I am completely not the target audience for the Twilight movies or the or books. I. And in all fairness to the fact that I make fun of them all the time, I was a book dealer when the first Twilight book came out, and I could not read it. I, I was not, I was not impressed. I, I started reading it. I was like, this is I no, and I put it down and never looked back. People are fans, and they are allowed to be fans and enjoy the series and have a good time with it. And that's and because there's you know I, it's, there's stuff I like that other people don't like. That's that's yeah. how it works, right? But um, you look at this kind of stuff. There are not that Lord of the Rings. There are not that many series. There are not that many uh, uh, stories that resonate with an audience the way that some of this stuff does. Mm-hmm. And the fans end up with, because it's so woven into the culture and who they are and their childhood, there is a sense misplaced of ownership. Right. Um, it almost makes your head hurt, doesn't it? A little bit. A little bit. Yeah. All right. Well, you, know, you know how you solve that? Ibuprofen. That and more coffee. coffee. More yes, coffee. which we are going to take and uh, and let you uh, listen to our uh, message from our sponsor, SuperheroStuff.com, where you can get a hero box with all sorts of stuff in it. Uh, I'm getting ready to turn in an order here pretty soon. Uh, so we will let you hear from them. And on the backside of the break, uh, we are going to hear from David Gerald, and we will continue our discussion about the right to make a fan film when H2O continues right after this. Podcasting is our superpower. This is Sci-Fi for Me Radio. Where can you get Age of Ultron stuff? SuperheroStuff.com Where can you get Justice League stuff? SuperheroStuff.com Where can you get Doctor Who stuff? SuperheroStuff.com Where can you get Daredevil stuff? SuperheroStuff.com New items being added all the time. Get your superhero stuff at SuperheroStuff.com. Plus, the Hero Box is back. $70 worth of superhero stuff for only $49. SuperheroStuff.com, where heroes shop. There are plenty of places to get your genre news. We get that. Which is why we go visit those places for you. And then we bring it all back here so it's all in one handy little place. Sci-Fi for Me is your one-stop shop for everything genre. Comic books, video games, TV, movies, the latest best-selling novels. Join us as we delve into the many story universes over a nice cup of coffee. We've got everything you need, all in one place. SciFiForMe.com, your portal to the science fiction multiverse. Whoa, where'd you get that shirt? Bought it at the convention last week. It's an atomic cotton design. Atomic cotton? Yep, they got t-shirt designs from sci-fi, horror, cult films. All the shirts were really unique and fun. I had to get one. I gotta wait for another convention, though. Nope. AtomicCotton.com. I ordered a shirt. Shipping was super fast. Atomic Cotton, where Erica and Zach combine their passion for art and film to create wearable art. All original, made with a love for the genre. Coming to a convention near you very soon. Or find them on the web at AtomicCotton.com. Atomic Cotton. Shirts and art for fans by fans. 
You're listening to H2O on Sci-Fi for Me Radio. Back on H2O, Jason Hutt here along with Timothy Harvey. Hi there. If you want to join the conversation, you can send us an email, h2o at sci-fi for me.com, uh, or call our hotline and leave a message. It's 573-42-SCI-FI. And for all you armchair lawyers out there, before you start sending us your comments and your thoughts and your opinions, because we're all experts now because of the internet, um, leave your comments in the informed category, if you would, please. Um, not saying that you can't comment if you don't know what's going on. I mean, everybody's entitled to an opinion. Just like everybody's entitled to uh, make a fan film, right? We're all entitled. Wait. Yeah, yeah, about that. David Gerald, writer of The Trouble with Tribbles, writer of The Galactic Whirlpool, which is actually a pretty good Star Trek book, mm-hmm. the old Bantam line. He's had some involvement in fan films. Yeah. Um, Phase two, New Voyages, he's written and directed mm-hmm. over there. Yeah. And he's consulted with Star Trek Continues. And he's got a little thing what he wrote. And, of course, David Gerald is David Gerald. Love him or hate him. You know, there are there are various different uh, uh, schools of thought uh, in terms of his, um, what people think about him. Well, but you have that with everybody. Yeah. So, he says, he writes, I'm not a lawyer. I do not even play one on TV. <laughs> and I sound nothing like David Gerald. I was so, going to yeah, say, no. yeah, that's what... And nothing I've posted about the Axanar lawsuit has ever been intended as legal commentary. It was intended as the opinion of a knowledgeable observer. Now, remember, this is David Gerald. He's worked in the industry. Sure. One. He he helped uh, develop and, and he ran Land of the Lost. Mm-hmm. He was part of Star Trek. He was part of Star Trek The Next Generation. He was there from the get-go when Next Generation started. You see that uh, that um, documentary that Shatner did on the first couple of seasons of Next Gen? It's on Netflix now. It's oh yeah, very, yeah, yeah. Very mm-hmm. interesting. I haven't, I have not watched it. Yeah, um, the the things that Maurice Hurley says is very, very interesting. I'm really surprised that show lasted longer than two seasons. Yeah, yeah. With everything, mm. with everything that was going on behind the scenes. Yeah. So okay, so David Gerald was there. Mm-hmm. He's dealt with CBS and Paramount and stuff. So, so he's you know when he says he's a knowledgeable observer, he's not just saying that. Continuing here, I've had dealings with Paramount Legal since the early seventies, and in almost every case, found them to be intelligent, well researched, and understanding not only their own rights, but also well aware of the full scope of the circumstances they must deal with. I have also from time to time been asked by people at Paramount to help them understand various situations with fans. Because the suits don't understand fandom sometimes, I suppose. I've also had dealings with CBS, mostly good. And again, the folks at CBS want to have a good relationship with the fan base. Many are enthusiastic about Star Trek. The one person I did have contact with at CBS Legal probably isn't there anymore. He was an ass. (laughs) 
but I don't think he represents all of corporate thinking. And I can say that word because in the biblical sense, it's donkey. Yeah, there you go. I've also worked on Trek in, ver in a variety of roles. I've worked on New Voyages, and I've given Alec Peters as much moral support as I can because I admire his enthusiasm and commitment as well as his integrity. That this situation has occurred is probably because of a lack of communication, probably, uh, possibly on both sides. I do believe that CBS has not been as clear as they could be on the guidelines for fan films, but I suspect that to a great deal, they don't understand the situation they've inherited and don't understand how to make the best of it. And that probably goes back to the legal decision, uh, when was it, late 80s, early 90s, that split the rights from CBS and Paramount? Yeah, Because right. Paramount had it up until a certain point, and then CBS, when, when, when Paramount got split off when Viacom bought it, right. then CBS retained certain rights of Star Trek that they didn't have before, mm -hmm. and then Paramount had the movie rights and stuff, and suddenly CBS has got this thing that's like, oh, well, what do we do with this? Right. Yeah. That's probably what he was referring to here. Regardless of the legal issues that have been discussed ad infinitum ad nauseum, little Latin there, I stand by my conviction that the only win-win here is to find a way for CBS to license fan films and issue a CBS-approved release of fan films, specifically identifying them as amateur productions. There is a larger issue here as well. The film industry is like the planet Earth at the end of the Cretaceous era. Science lesson here. A gigantic comet has just slammed into it. That comet is the synergistic combination of modern-day electronics and the Internet. For less than a grand, you can get a phone or a camera that shoots 4K video. For less than a grand, you can get a laptop on which you can edit that 4K video. If you spend 6000 you can get equipment and software and lights that will give you professional level quality. This means that just about anyone who wants to make film can make film. I didn't spend 6000 on mine. Maybe that's where I'm falling short. You also didn't shoot 4K. <laughs> that's true. I don't see the point. The internet gives you worldwide distribution, instantly. Now, imagine the big studios are like big lumbering dinosaurs. They're successful in their ecological niche. They proceed slowly but inevitably. They spend $100 million to lay an egg, and they can only lay one or two eggs a year, and they desperately need at least one of those eggs to hatch and generate a billion dollars so they can keep laying eggs. Meanwhile, there's all these little eggs sucking... Therapsids, ther therapsids, ther ther running around, laying hundreds of little offspring that cost them only a few thousand, like The Blair Witch Project or Paranormal Activity. Your favorite films. Oh, yes. yes. Some of those little offspring are so spectacular, they end up generating hundreds of millions of dollars. The return on investment is incredible, and that inspires thousands more hungry little egg-sucking therapsids. To I think I'm saying that right. I have no idea. To make thousands more of these little projects. Where the dinos can produce only one or two eggs a year, the therapsids can produce two or three litters in the same time. Uh, he's basically saying that the studios need to create partnerships with the independent groups, the independent filmmakers, where the little independents... Reading here from his note, can get the protection of the studios, and the studios can enjoy the profits that come from supporting and distributing work that otherwise would languish. 
The real winners, of course, will be the audience because they'll have the opportunity to see much more imaginative films than they could ever see otherwise. That's a very telling statement right there. Much more imaginative films than what? Star Trek Beyond? Well, okay. Star Trek Into Darkness? Okay, look, you... The the argument I think you could easily make there is the same thing that you would see from the various original series, fan series, um, with, uh, you know, Phase 2 and, and, and that sort of thing. Right. Because you've got multiple crews, multiple creative peoples um, producing those stories in a way that you know, if if it was if it was all Paramount, if it was all CBS, they'd be doing one. Right, and sometimes some of these guys get together and they they combine. Yeah. So your ship will meet their ship. Right. Exactly. So, but by default, there are more fans than there are studio. Mm-hmm. And if there is actually a studio and only one fan, there's a problem. Well, but, it's like that. It's like that. I'd rather have. I'd rather have 100 customers pay me a dollar each than one customer pay me a hundred dollars. Exactly. Same kind of right. thing. Right. So, so automatically, if you have 10 fans who have the ability to go off and make a fan film, and they do, you're automatically producing 10 times as much content. Right. And 10 times as much chance to be a promotional thing for your thing, or to tarnish your image. And that's the rub. Right. So. With something like this, something like Axanar. <clears throat> now, now, to to that point, as far as the quality goes, Axanar looks great. Oh, it looks amazing. It looks I, spectacular. Prelude to Axanar, um, if it has not been pulled off the internet at this point, <laughs> um, <laughs> is is something that you should watch if you haven't watched it. It's a really, really impressive little yeah, it's short. Very well done. Um, and it really makes you want to watch Axanar. Um, but. I think that there's an argument to be made for things like this, things of this scale, or maybe things of the scale of the hour-long fan episodes. You know, the, basically it's the, we're going to make season four. We're going to make season five, right? Um, we're going to do the, the, the five-year mission that wasn't broadcast. Mm. Okay? Those are the kind of things where I think that, honestly, there's a, something to be said for CBS... Uh, going, okay, tell you what, we will give you a, you know, here's the seal that says, CBS says this is okay, but you can't make any money on it, and we get approval, because there's or, where things get interesting. Or if there's money to be made, like, like if Gerald, if Gerald's idea, if we, if we go that route, say, I want to make a Star Trek film. I write my script. Mm -hmm. I send it to CBS Legal. It's got a cover letter. It's got all the whatever the paperwork and stuff that you have to send in to apply to be a licensed fan film. Mm -hmm. I'm probably going to have to pay a fee. Even if it's a nominal one. Yeah, but... li license fee. So CBS has a revenue stream coming in now. Mm -hmm. And it's a non-refundable fee, obviously. Mm -hmm. And then they could turn around and they say yes or no. And they don't have to give you any notes why they turned it down because how many how many film contests are out there? How many places where you where you submit your scripts or your short stories mm -hmm. or whatever to your competitions and your contests and 
you'll get a form letter back. You know, thanks very much, but we're not going to pursue right. it, whatever. Now, there are the rare competitions where you actually do get critiques back on the stuff that you sure. submit. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's going to be the case in something like this. Well, this will be very, I think this will be a real challenge, honestly, because, um, because you, you haven't had to get permission or, you know, yeah. a stamp of approval. Well, and, Overall. and when that article that, that Hinman wrote over at 1701 News, he makes the point that when, when the rights got split, CBS inherited this notion of the open submission policy. Because you remember Next Generation and DS9 and all those guys, you could submit script up to two. You, could, you had a limit of two, but you right, could right. submit scripts mm -hmm. to the show without an agent. You could just send them a script. I kick myself to this day because I didn't send that one in. Right. And then they did it. What I did. Because mm. I wrote it a year before they did. Anyway. Let that be a lesson to you, sir. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so uh, my understanding from Hinman's article is that CBS sat there and went, well, we don't know what to do with this. What? How? How? Can, how? how uh, uh. And when it got shut down, apparently the people over the Paramount side of things didn't want that to go away. Right. Now, I don't know how much of that is actually the case or whatnot. But, but maybe you've got something like that here where if you've got a fan film idea, you've got a script, you're going to submit it for approval and process and this and that and pay the fee and do da 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 Right. Okay. Well, there's that part. Where CBS gives you a green light, let's say CBS says, okay, you're going to be an officially licensed fan film. Mm -hmm. And you get all of the artwork and the graphics and the whatnot that says you've got permission to do it. Mm -hmm. If it makes any money at all, because let's say I put this fan film up on YouTube. Right. As part of my Sci-Fi For Me channel. Our Sci-Fi Premier Channel, or mm -hmm. my Devonshire Jamestown Pictures, my production channel. Right. All right? That is a partner-level channel, which means I have access to ad revenue. Right. So, I could conceivably upload this Star Trek fan film and... If I'm not telling anybody, I could <laughs> hit that little check mark to let the ads run on it. Right. Mm -hmm. Which yes. means then I make money on it. Mm -hmm. Now, there's got to be something in the paperwork that says either I don't make any money, which means I can't check that little box on YouTube or Vimeo or wherever. Right. Or if I do make money on it, there has to be a split. CBS has got to get the lion's share of it because they own the property. Mm-hmm. Sure. That will kill fan films because yes. the paperwork and the accounting, mm -hmm. because I'm not going to have a spreadsheet that tells me how much revenue is generated on every single film, each individual video that I upload. Right. Exactly. I just got a total. I mean, you could break it down in the analytics, but you have to be at a certain level in order to get access to that analytic data. A lot of these people aren't going to have that. Oh, and they're not going to want to go through the process of having to deal with keeping track of all of that. So, on the one hand, yes, fine, all well and good. These 
fan films are legal and, and upright and, and they can continue, they can go forward and, and yes, you know, be fruitful and multiply and all of that. Mm-hmm. But the back end of it is going to be such a, a an accounting and paperwork nightmare that nobody's going to want to do it. Right. So fan films will die. Now, the other side of that, if CBS does the licensing thing and they say, okay, Mr. Harvey, you, you, we like your script. You can go do your fan film. Here's your graphics and here's your stuff and you pay your fee. Of course, I'm a very good writer. That's right. <laughs> You've got your officially licensed Star Trek fan film that you're doing. Right. Meanwhile, in Bloodhaven, I decide that I want to make a Star Trek fan film. And you can't tell me, no, never mind, that I got to pay a fee. I'm just going to go make one. Right. Because fair use, or whatever the whatever the armchair legalese mm-hmm. of the week is. Sure, right. right. Okay, so then, what does CBS then have to do? They have to go, ever, they have to go after every single non-licensed fan film out there. Exactly. Which means more legal costs for them, more headaches, more hassles, mm-hmm. which will eventually lead to CBS saying, none of you can do any of it, none of it. Right. The sandbox is closed. Yeah. And then you're going to have Marvel and Lucasfilm and 20th Century Fox and whoever else. Take a look at that legal precedent now. Sure. Because Axanar is going to be legal precedent. However, it gets decided. Oh yeah. This is gonna this this potentially could have a huge, huge impact. It could. It could potentially shut down fan films altogether. I don't think it will. I don't either. But But it it will resonate. Right. And it will be hanging out there like the Sword of Damocles for the rest of everybody's careers. Anybody who wants to make a fan film is going to sit there and go, hey, remember what happened to Axanar? Right. And that's going to be hanging over every single person who wants to make a fan film from now on, whatever that decision is. And it's not going to go Axanar's way. However however much they want to put a shine on that apple, they're not going to win. There's going to be some sort of an agreement, but they're not going to win. Well... Because they uh, yeah, don't yeah. own because they don't own Star Trek. Right, However right. you look at it, mm-hmm. sure. they don't own it, and they don't have a right to it. Right, this is true. Lucasfilm will probably be the next one because the fan film competition is one thing, and that's kind of like giving a license to fans to do this. We're going to give you permission to do it. You submit to the competition. Mm-hmm. But that's a very specific path. That's a very very specific channel channel of distribution, as it were, where you make your fan film, you submit to this, and it's going to be distributed. It's going to be shown here on yes. this website as part of the competition. Mm-hmm. You can't put it anywhere else. However they want to do that, they could they could restrict it. Oh, yeah. And then they could say, okay, we're going to have it on our website for six months, and then it goes away, and nobody else can ever see it again, and you can't upload it to your YouTube channel. There are going to be so many different places where this could go 
completely sideways for all the fan films out there. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's... There, and I don't think it will. I honestly don't. Um, because I think they will find a way to get this... There are too many, there are too many potential... Well, t- Tony Todd's already left the project. There are too many potential because ups, of all of this. upsides for CBS to do this. And again, we come back, we come back to the, the quality of this stuff is, ends up being a marketing tool for their own stuff. Yeah, potentially. Potential, yeah, but I, I think the legal stuff trumps everything else. I don't know. I honestly don't. I think that there's... Well, and, and I know there's a difference between copyright and trademark. Oh, sure. In yeah. that, and, and this, again, you know, we're, we're getting into the weeds here, but in the case of copyright, you own a copyright. I, I publish something, and I own the copyright of that sure. in perpetuity until I die plus 75 years. Mm-hmm. My estate owns it after that, and it becomes there. After a certain amount of time, it becomes public domain, right? Which means anybody can use it for anything. It was one of the reasons why we were able to do a, a an adaptation of the statement of Randolph Carter. Yes, because it's in the public domain. A lot of Sherlock Holmes stories are in the public domain. Yes, John Carter, mm-hmm. the prince, uh, you know, Princess of Mars. We could go make our own Princess of Mars movie because it's in the public domain. Sure. Star Trek is not. Star Trek doesn't look like it's ever going to be. I would suspect it unlikely, yes. And this this idea that people are comparing copyright to trademark, the way a trademark works, and a good example of this is the Sci-Fi Channel. Mm-hmm. Trademark, you register your trademark. Like, say for us, our slogan is, your portal to the science fiction multiverse. Right. If I really was smart and legal and, and we were bigger, I would register that trademark. I'd pay my $275 <coughs> mm-hmm. to the U.S. Government Copyright and Trademark Office, Patent, sure. and, tra- patent and Trademark mm-hmm. Office. And that would be mine, but I have to defend it. Right. So if somebody like io9 or Sci-Fi Bulletin or Geek Tyrant or whoever else decides they want to start using your portal to the science fiction multiverse, I have to go after them with a right. cease and desist and say, you can't use that. It's mine. I've got the paperwork that says it's mine. I have to defend that trademark. If I don't, then that's considered abandonment of the mark and anybody can use it. Right. Which is what happened when NBC Universal decided not to pursue and protect the trademark that they already had on the Sci-Fi Channel. Mm-hmm. So I could go and I could come up with a new, I I could make a new cable company and call it the Sci-Fi Channel. Yes, probably. You could you could do that. Yes. <laughs> so copyright, trademark are not the same thing, and people that are equating the two have absolutely no idea what they're talking about. There is nothing here that says CBS has to defend their copyright the way they would have to defend a trademark. Right. Because people, you know, some people have gone online and said, well, they have, to def- they, have to, they have to protect their copyright. They have to sue because if they don't sue, they'll lose the copyright. Well, no, that's not how copyright works. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. No, they don't have to do squat. But – 
they clearly understand something about Axonar, whatever it is, we don't know, because really we won't know unless this goes to court. <clears throat> because True. then yeah. then then we'll have a public record of of just what exactly it is that they're that they're doing here. I think it's a combination of things. I think it's the fact that it is this big, the fact that they used that money to build Ares Studios. Uh, that was probably, I think that's honestly, the that thing. was the trigger. That I, was that I was think so. that was the one thing that really feels like it was okay, now you've gone too far. Now, that's not named in here as far as you know, I'm, I'm you know, we're getting into the damages that they're looking for and all that. So there's nothing in here that mentions Ares Studios. Right. But there is, you know, the use of the money to hire professional actors to do, you know, the, what the money's being used for. They're spelling this out. It it does lead me to lean toward that being a key component in CBS finally sitting there going, okay, the line has been crossed. Now we must act. Yeah. And I, I the just... line has been drawn. Yeah. Well, and I really think that that's, you know, it reached the point where they could not legally, to protect their own property, ignore it. That it was just... Right. They had... Because if they didn't do something then, then that opened the door, that left a door open that could not be left open well, from and, a, and, in a broader legal business sense. And I'm curious. I really wish I, I could have been a fly on the wall for those conversations that took place in Las Vegas. Because according to Peters, it went one way. And we haven't heard CBS's side of it. Whatever that conversation was that he had with executives from CBS and Paramount. Representatives right, of course, or sure. Whatever, uh-huh. The way he spends it, it's, you know, they were aware of it. They're keeping an eye on it. They didn't give him any sense, any, any particular parameters or directions because then they would be officially acknowledging it in some way, shape, or form, whatever legal, legal thing. Right. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink, you know, but I'm wondering if that conversation actually went the way it's been presented. Well, it may... I'm not, I'm not saying Peters is a liar. I'm just saying that his perception of that conversation may be completely different. From what, uh, his takeaway could be completely different from CBS and, and Paramount. Well, do we, but there's, there's something about that, that that has bothered me from the beginning. And that is that it's terribly, terribly naive. Because if there is one thing that the entertainment world does, is it gives good meeting. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, so they didn't say not to. Right. Well, see, and, and okay, for for those of you, for those he's, of you, he's invoking Grace Murray Hopper. Yeah. <laughs> if you if you're not familiar with the phrase "give good, gives good meeting," yeah. um, this is basically something that if you are making, if you want to make a project in Hollywood. And we have friends of ours who have done this. They've gone out to L.A., they've pitched projects, they've had meeting after meeting with studio after studio, and great times and, and lavish lunches, lunches and, and they've gone out drinking, and they've had great things, cool things with coffee at the office and all this stuff, and nothing happens right. with the project because um, it is not good business to lead with the word no. And this is something that, that 
so you can you can meet with someone and they will tell you they love your project and they love your idea and yes I cannot wait to get moving forward on this and then you never hear from them again and that's just that's just part and parcel of of doing doing business in the entertainment world and it's not limited to the movie industry but it's it's a it's actually a, a fairly uh, common thing to do. So if you go to a meeting and someone doesn't tell you no, uh, that's not necessarily the same thing as telling you yes. And the idea that they're suddenly going, oh yeah, they're supportive. Okay. That doesn't mean they're supportive. Yeah. That means they just didn't tell you no. So unless you have, okay. Well, see, and, and if they do tell them no, then it legally may obligate them to tell everybody no. It certainly could, but it. I think that in not necessarily. Not necessarily. I think that. I mean, it could. It could. I don't know. Um, but it seems like the. It would be a very very easy thing here for you to go to somebody and say, "Look, this is what we're going to do. Um, this is what we. You know, we're this." Where, where, you know, this is your thing. We're not going to, I mean, there's so many different ways this could have been done differently that it wasn't done differently. And it is, it is what it is, right? As far as we know. As far as we know. Yeah. But still, it's, it's unfortunate because it really did look good. Yeah. And I'm, I'm really quite afraid we're not going to, we're not going to see it come to pass here. Um, I mean, we'll still have return. We'll have, well, assuming, you know, it'll, it'll pop back up online because it always does. <laughs> we'll have Prelude to Axinar. Um, but I think the broader question, I think there will, there will be a way, there will be a way that fan films will continue going forward without seeing too much change in the landscape that exists now. However, for something on a scale that's larger than, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, there could easily be some much bigger hoops to jump through. Well, and that could be the other thing that triggered this, is the fact that they were making a feature-length oh, yeah. project rather than uh, an episode length, whether it's you know 15 minutes, 45 mm -hmm. minutes, an hour. Right. They're looking at, a f I think, a four-hour project. Four-hour story or something like yeah, that. Yeah, and, and some of, some of it. I mean, scale scale really can be a huge chunk of this. Well, I mean, they've got a million dollars to play with. Right. Yeah. That. I mean, that's that's nothing that you can sit there and ignore. I wouldn't think. Well, it you can, but from from a, from a financial standpoint, from a business standpoint, it's foolish to ignore it. Yeah. It's potentially dangerous to ignore. It. I would think the CBS would look at that and go, a million dollars. We should have a piece of that. Well, yeah, <laughs> not only yeah. that, but but also once you're once you're playing with that kind of money and you are hiring people to do a job um on that scale you get into it you you are no longer necessarily making a fan film. Yeah. You are making a film using somebody else's characters. And that's what their complaint is. Yeah. So I think that <laughs> as much as I, as you know, oh, yeah, yeah, I would love to have a million dollars to go off and make a Doctor Who movie. 
Yeah, I would so do that in a heartbeat. <laughs> and I would get Michelle Gomez to come out and play the master, and and it would just be awesome. No, 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 no. You gotta get, you gotta get Christopher Lloyd. Christopher Lloyd could play the Thirteenth Doctor. There we go. And and the BBC would be suing me so quick. Yeah. Um. <clears throat> but yeah, so it's. I don't know. I, I, I as as a creative person, as a, as a writer, as a filmmaker, as a storyteller, um, I don't want someone telling me I can't tell a story in a certain universe. But I also am not unaware of the fact that I don't own it. Well, and that's one of the reasons why a stra mm -hmm. the Strange New Worlds short story competition was such a big thing. Because it was pocketbooks mm -hmm. officially the license holder for published work in the Star Trek universe. Right. Sitting there saying, okay, fans, write your short stories and send them in. And the good ones that we like, we'll publish. Mm -hmm. And we'll pay you and it was it was a way that suddenly there was a way for a fan to to become a professional writer sure yeah there was an entry point into the publication world mm -hmm. and you know how many how many people are now writing star trek books because they were part of that contest Oh yeah, it's a, it's a fantastic. It's a foot in the door and a really hard thing to get a foot in the door through. And will never happen again. Because the one the one that's out there now, um, uh, Keith DeCandido, who edited the originals, right? He says, "Don't do it because it's just a glorified way of getting getting you the fan writer mm -hmm. to use their um, subsidy publishers." Where you pay to publish? Oh no, no, yeah, 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 yeah. Folks, fo don't don't ever yeah. do that. Folks at home, Vanity Publishing yeah, uh, Vanity. is is a don't 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 pay anybody to publish your stuff. That's not how it works. The internet is free. Post it online. Yeah, I mean, but uh, well, and and I was talking. We were talking to Nick Lowe one time. He was the group editor of the X Men comics mm -hmm. at Marvel. He was here at Planet Comic Con one time, and he's you know we were talking about the 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 rarity now of portfolio reviews at mm -hmm. sure. at uh, conventions. They still do it, and it's a lot easier for artists to get discovered at conventions because you can bring in a book and here's your art, and they flip through it and they like right, what they yeah. see and whatever. For writers, not so much. It's not that easy. Mm -hmm. And what uh, what Nick Lowe had said at that point is, in order to be discovered as a comic book writer, you have to write the comic books, find somebody to draw them, mm -hmm. and put them online. Yeah. He said, you got you know, you, you know, that's the best way to go about doing it. Mm -hmm. And really, fan films are a way of flexing your creative muscles. Sure. Um, you know, well, look at Batman Dead End. I right. mean, the only reason Sandy Carolla did that it was to prove that he could direct, mm -hmm. because up until that point he hadn't directed anything. And you know, but I mean, you could still do the same kind of thing with original stuff. I say, if I wanted to make a Star Trek movie, but I can't, I I know legally I can't make it a Star Trek movie, then maybe I set it on the SS Columbus, right? And it's, you know. The, the captain's name is is Captain Winter, 
you know, whatever. Right. You know, sure. yeah. and, you know, the first officer's a woman, and you know, you make you know, make mm-hmm. up a completely new thing. You know, the pastiche is going to still be there. But sure, it's original. Right. Well, it's like Fifty Shades of Grey. Fifty Shades of Grey was Twilight fan fiction, right? With the names changed, you know? right? And for those it's of like you, drag, that... Dragnet. Yeah, <laughs> the following stories are true. The names of the yeah, have been changed to protect the innocent. And from those of you who who have no desire to uh, you know to watch Fifty Shades of Grey, or do but weren't aware that it was fan fiction. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, it's it's a very interesting. You know, Solar Ponds. Solar Ponds was a pastiche of Sherlock Holmes that actually ran for like novel after novel mm. or collection of short stories, and it was a. Uh, uh, so I mean, you could. This is this is not a new thing either. I don't know. It's weird because you know Star Trek and Star Wars and Batman and these fan films. The way that they work, they they have a way of getting your stuff in front of a larger audience and just making your own thing because the, the name is attached. And that's the double-edged sword. Yeah, that, that's the, the thing. The name is attached, so you get the exposure, but the name is attached, which means you're responsible for playing in their world. And that means you're playing in their legal world. Right. So. Well, and even even now, I mean, you get the, you get the writers who are actually doing the real stuff, mm-hmm. you know, like Dayton Ward or Kevin Dilmore or Greg Cox or, or Ke- uh, uh, David Mack, any sure. of those guys. Mm-hmm. There's such a process involved in getting those books to print. Mm, oh yeah. yeah, from the very get-go, it's I've got an idea, mm-hmm. and the editor sits there and goes, "I like the idea. Write up a synopsis mm-hmm. or an outline or a treatment or something," and that's got to go through. And not only does the editor have to like it, but the licensing people at Paramount mm-hmm. or CBS, I guess CBS licensing now, they have to like it, mm-hmm. and they have to say, "Okay." Go to the next step. So the next step is either you know an outline or a, a, a longer draft treatment or you know something like that, or first fi- you know first three chapters or right, whatnot. Sure. So there there are so many different steps along the way where any one person in the chain can put the kibosh on the whole thing. Oh yeah. So when it finally gets to print, when you see the book on the shelf. It's gone through layers and layers and layers of approvals and legal and back and forth and switch and change this and you can't use this character or whatever. Mm-hmm. Well, we've seen it in the Marvel stuff. You can't use this character. Well, right. the, D- the DC side too. Because we're going to use it. We're going to use it over here, and right. therefore we won't want you to use it here because we want to confuse people or, or we don't want you to do something there that's going to contradict. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you can see the same thing happening with. Um, but even then. Even then, you get into weird, funky things like William Shatner's Star Trek novels, the Garfield, really Garfield, the yeah, the, Judith, the, Judith yeah, the Reeve Stevens, um, you know, the Preserver and 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 all that series, um, where Kirk comes back from the dead and has new adventures with the crew of the Starship Enterprise and. Well, and, and it doesn't. One of the reasons, di- it of the reasons direct- why those books were so successful is because nobody wanted Kirk to be dead. Well, in the first I know, place. but in in some respects, you could argue pretty con- convincingly that that is fan fiction. It's yeah. licensed <laughs> fan fiction, but but also it's the, the I think the trick there is that it didn't contradict directly contradict anything that they had already established, and it was playing in a portion of the universe they really had no intentions of playing in at the time. 
um, you know, no one was going to sit there. But they did actually contradict themselves later because the, the, the solution to the Borg, the origins of the Borg in that book series contrad- or contradicted by Voyager. So, but anyway, so, yeah. you know, it's just, uh, I would love to see Axanar. I really, really would. I think it's, I think it's a neat project. It's a fantastic cast. What cast might be left at this point. Um, but it really does sound like, uh, I don't, I, I have a hard time looking at CBS and seeing him as the bad guy here. Um, yeah. And I, 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 and, and, you know, I'm not, I, I'm also not looking at the folks behind Axanar and going, you know, you guys are in the wrong either. I'm just, it's. The fact that people don't, you know, the entire internet is full of people going, but what about, yeah. you know, uh, there's, there's enough, there's enough confusion still, but yeah, I just. Are, are, are the, the ideal scenario would be for Axonar and CBS to some, to, to come to some kind of an agreement. Oh yeah. Which would allow us. To have Axonar move forward mm-hmm. in some capacity, it's probably a reduced capacity. You can only make an hour-long film, no, something whatever, like that. something like that. And there has to be the graphic card and whatnot that says this is not a licensed thing. This is not. This is fan fiction. Da, 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 da. I suspect that Aries Studios might have to go away as part of that agreement. Because if the fan fiction money was used to set that up, mm-hmm. there's there's the biggest hurdle to all of that. Yeah, I think, well, if it's either going to have to go away or it's going to have to become something that is a separate entity. And... Well, I would expect it's already a separate entity, but the fact that that money, the the, the money that was used right, to set it up. Right, but I mean, it's, it up, it's, I mean that, that, money, that money is going to have to go back to the, you know. Yeah, so some, somehow that's going to have to be. Yeah, there's going to have to be a severing of the two. And the, the other thing is that, you know, we can hope that this doesn't negatively impact other fan films. That's going to be the long-term impact of this, whatever the decision is in this in this case. What's it going to do to other fan films? And I'm hoping, I'm hoping it doesn't do anything to them. But, you know, like I said earlier, this is going to be hanging over everybody's head. If it doesn't, if it doesn't go the way Axanar would hope it goes, and it's not going to. But if it's a complete shutdown of Axanar, then everybody else is going to be walking a tightrope. I think, I think it's a very real chance that they will have a trigger. And the trigger might be length or budget, or something like that, because in the long term, studios, publishers, comic book companies, um, going after your fan base uh, is not necessarily the brightest idea. Yeah. A long term that can really, really damage the brand. And they are businesses, and they are aware of this, but... I think that if you find there hasn't been anything like Axanar before. Right. And I think that's, I think that really is because it is new, we're all worried, but I think that there's going to be this, there's going to be a trigger and it's going to be something like, Hey, you can't make a feature film based on this thing that you don't own. Hey, you can't spend a million dollars on this. Hey, you can't build a studio. Um, you know, 
um, I, I, I think that I think that will end up somehow being being the the thing that saves the fan film from this turning into the you know oh stop everybody out of the pool because yeah. that I, I just I can't I can't see any I can't see any business logic and that ultimately is what it's going to come down to for folks is for because again they're businesses business logic in damaging your own brand with your own base that much right so. i don't know where we are definitely going to keep an eye on it oh yeah see how it develops as things develop we'll keep you apprised over at sci-fi from you.com which is where you can find all the latest headlines see what i did there that, that's very nice yeah. if you've got an opinion you want to armchair quarterback this uh, armchair lawyer it and and whatnot you can uh, send us your thoughts h2o at sci-fi from you.com you can leave a comment on our social media we're on facebook instagram twitter pinterest google plus youtube Tumblr, and you can also leave a comment over at SciFiForMe.com. That's going to do it for us this week. Hopefully, if we don't get shut down by somebody, we'll be back next week with another episode. <laughs> oh, wait, wait. Yeah. Telegram. <laughs> Candygram. Candygram. <laughs> okay, kids, that's a joke about a... Oh, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> All right. My name is Jason Hodge, Timothy Harvey. Always a pleasure, sir. And just to keep us legal, this is a copyrighted program from SciFiForMe.com, copyright 2016 by Philly Meat and Dog Media, LLC. All rights reserved. No portion of this program can be retransmitted without the express written consent of Flaming Dog Media. And uh, we will be back with another episode of H2O next week.